Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to come and live and die for us that we might live unto thee. We pray that as we approach Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we would remember this good news and that we would remember to walk with you in all of this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. You may have noticed this past week, at least some of the crosses and and Jesus became draped with purple, and you may be wondering, well, why is that? Or perhaps you looked more closely at the bulletin than I ever do, and you noticed that today was Passion Sunday, and you wondered, well, what is Passion Sunday? Today is Passion Sunday, of course. But it's the, the fifth Sunday in Lent as we come to approach Easter and, and Good Friday more specifically. And we kind of turn from this stance of being repentant. Of course, we remain repentant, but we turn and we look towards Christ's passion. For whatever reason, Passion Sunday has kind of fallen away in some liturgical traditions. The Roman Catholic Church removed it about 50 or 60 years ago and wed it to Palm Sunday, so it became Palm Sunday in the Passion of Christ or something along that line. And the Episcopal Church did likewise. I, I was curious as I was preparing and I looked at the ACNA 2019 prayer book and they actually put Passion Sunday back in to today, which I think is a good thing because Passion Sunday stands as a really important reminder of what, what we are heading towards. We are heading towards, of course, Christ's Passion when I was younger, I was, I was really confused about what this word passion meant. Because for us, when we hear this word passion, we think of something like hot with passion, or we think of something that you might read in a Harlequin romance. Don't read Harlequin romances, by the way. <laughs> or in a soap opera, my, my advice stands the same there as well. Or perhaps somebody who, who, in an act of passion, does something bad or how we feel about our spouse or our work or something along that lines. But this is not what passion is. Passion instead refers to what Christ did for us on the cross. And it comes from this from a Latin word that means to suffer, to bear, or to endure. And we know enough about Christ's passion, I hope, to know that he suffered for us that he bore our sins for us, that he endured this suffering for us. And so on Passion Sunday, we turn our focus, like I said, away from this repentance and turn our face towards the cross because now we are walking towards Good Friday. And in order to understand why we have the cross, our epistle lesson draws that out. Hebrew 9 starts to prepare us for what is coming in the, in the weeks that follow today, the next two weeks. It sets the groundwork that we would have a theological understanding of the cross. Now, the imagery that is used here is, is fairly foreign to us. At least as Anglicans, we have some idea of what the priestly position meant. Not a complete idea, but a starting to that idea. Because we have priests within our tradition, and the priest leads us in corporate worship. But Christ is the only priest 
that made the sacrifice for us. So when we gather in corporate worship, we remember that sacrifice. We aren't making a new sacrifice. The priest leads us in corporate prayer. But Christ alone is your mediator. He opened the door that you can pray. You don't need to come to me every time you have a prayer. But you can just offer those prayers up because Christ is your high priest. The priest invites us and brings us to the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, at the altar that we come before Sunday after Sunday, there's no re-sacrificing, but saved the renewed reminder that our whole lives belong to God. And when we speak of sacrifice in the liturgy, it's that we would sacrifice our gods, our lives, our souls, and bodies to him, that we would live to him. And we don't make sacrifice week in and week out because Christ is the Passover sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice made once for all. The sacrifice in Christ is complete. He has paid the whole price. And so at the table, you are reminded that the sacrifice is made, and you taste and see the good things that are coming. And you are invited to spiritually commune with him. In our worship, you have a taste of what once was. That is what the priest used to do, bringing the prayers of the people before God. You have a taste of what Christ has made us, and you are reminded that you are a nation of priests. Each and every one of you, now the door is open that you can bring your prayers before God. And in that, you know what will be in the age to come. When you have full communion, every moment of eternity with God the Father. Again, as Anglicans, we have some image of idea what the tent is that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. Because we set aside our sanctuary that is this little building for one purpose and one purpose alone. To worship God. We do not use our sanctuary for anything else. And if we were to, it would, be to, it would profane our space. We understand that we set aside places for holy use because we ask God to make them such and we reserve them for that purpose. We turn our attentions away from God. If we turn our attentions away from God while we are in this space, we profane it. But rather, we are reminded again and again that this place belongs to God and to God alone. We recognize that when we gather on Sundays or throughout the week to worship, to pray, to break the bread, and to drink the wine, that we come to do a holy thing. Likewise, we have the rail that separates the main part of the sanctuary from the, the altar part of the sanctuary. And this again reminds us that we move towards holiness. But this is but an image of what the tabernacle was. And the tabernacle was an image of the more perfect tent which Christ has entered into now. Christ is in the true tabernacle. Christ is in the heavenly court. That <clears throat> and it is described in many ways. But the tent, the tabernacle of, image, of Israel, which we remember back to, were mere images of that thing. 
in the holiest of places, is God's throne from where he reigns heaven and earth. And this is where Christ resides. He is in the heavenly court. And so, my friends, this is the good news. Your true priest, your, Im- your intermediary, your king, Christ, is God incarnate who sits at the right hand of God the Father, who takes your prayers and lays them before the feet of God. In Revelation, there's a beautiful image of Christ, of, of them taking the prayers of the saints, and they're described as being incense. Incense which is laid before God. Incense which is pleasing to God. Think about that. Your prayers, your laments, your rejoicing, your heartache offered to God, your laughter are heard by God and they please him. So pray, because we have a great high priest. Christ becoming our high priest is accomplished through Christ's passion, through Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, without the passion of Christ, there is no high priest. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to a friend's church, and this church was in, in Portland, Maine, and which is not a huge city, but it's a big city for Maine. And <clears throat> it's funny, it is, because we always thought it was the big city, um, but it's really not. But the church was in the city, and all I remember about the sermon was that the pastor was talking about the fact that we no longer make sacrifices, much like I'm talking about this morning. And he pointed out, you notice there's no goats outside. And all I could get in my head the rest of the day was this image of these goats being in a pen next to this brick building in Portland, Maine. But it's right. Again, you notice there are no goats outside, although that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? As long as we weren't sacrificing them. So unlike the image of the priest, the image of the sacrificial system is really hard for us to imagine. The closest we get to goats are we may see them grazing as we're driving around the countryside, or the closest the same with bulls. One time there were bulls at our neighbor's house, but we don't see them sacrificed like is talked about in the Old Testament. It's hard for us to imagine the sacrificial system But for the pagans and the Hebrews alike, who would have been the recipients, especially the Hebrews, who would have been the recipients of this letter or sermon, would have known exactly what this was talking about. Because they would have all been familiar with some form of sacrificial system, whether it be the sacrificial system that they're talking about specifically in this book, which was the the sacrificial system of the temple, or some sort of pagan sacrifice. But this has gone away for two reasons. First, the fall of the temple in 70 AD stopped the Jewish sacrificial system. There was no longer a place for them to make sacrifices. And then the second thing that happened is as Christianity especially spread through the West, pagan sacrifices stopped, largely because the pagans became Christians and came to Christ, and there was no longer a reason to make sacrifices. Because Christ's death is that sacrifice made once for all. That Christ's sacrifice takes the place and makes the atonement for you and for me. Christians of Hebrew heritage or pagan 
background no longer need to make sacrifices because the sacrifice has been complete in Christ. It is through Christ's action on the cross that your eternal redemption has taken place. It has been bought. It has been secured. The Hebrew sacrifices were a sign of redemption to come. They were a sign of the sanctification that we pray happens within each and every one of us. But they were an incomplete sign. They pointed us to this which was to come. This which came in Christ. Christ made that sacrifice for us. And we must be clear here, the reason that Christ's sacrifice ended all other sacrifices was because he was not only the Son of God, but that he was the second person. He is the second person of the Trinity made man. And so when he was nailed to the cross, God himself nailed himself to the cross. To understand the atonement in any other way is to put it very bluntly, a heresy. It wasn't as though God the Father said to God the Son, go down there and die. And God the Son was like, I don't really want to, but I will. No, it was God's will. It was Christ's will. It was the Holy Spirit's will. The three persons of the Trinity who are one were in agreement. There was no dissension between them. And so God on the cross for us, made the sufficient sacrifice. And it is through the Son that you are bound to him. It is through Christ, fully God, fully man, that you are purified from your sins, that you are freed from dead works, that you are given to serve a living God. My friends, because Christ lives, you live. And it is Christ's passion, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that this life, this redemption is secured for you. When Julie and I got married, we made a covenant, just as many of you made covenants with your spouses when you got married. It was, in a sense, a certain agreement together where we said, I will do this and I will do this, and made a promise that bound us together. Of course, our covenant was done in love. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not entirely sure, the marriage covenant is the best example of a covenant that we have in our day and age. But there's a big difference between this covenant and the covenants which are, would have been familiar for those in the ancient Near East. That is the culture, both when Jesus was alive and before that passed into when Israel was wandering around and developing itself into a nation. The big difference is that most of us view our marriage covenant as being at least somewhat equal. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there would have been one party that was definitely stronger than the other. We, of course, could think of like the Babylonians when we think of this one big giant nation coming in and saying, now you're ours, but here's the covenant that you're going to sign and you're going to agree to this. The, The second part of the party really didn't have a whole lot of say in what they were doing. And we can see lots of examples of these. They're fairly common. If you ever want to read ancient Near Eastern covenants, let me know. 
But God also made several covenants throughout the Old Testament. And it's important to note that these are, in fact, covenants in line with those covenants of the ancient Near East. And in it, he is clearly the strongest party. Hopefully that goes without saying. But there is a difference between the covenants of the ancient Near East and his covenants. It is that he makes those covenants in love. Like when you make a marriage covenant, it is done in love. And so his covenant with the people is done in love. He loved the people and he gave himself for the people. In Christ's passion, in his suffering, in his sacrifice, not only does he become the priest of this new covenant, not only is he the sacrifice that binds this new covenant, he is the mediator of this new covenant. To understand a mediator, we can think of labor disputes or in a marriage where there's a big problem and they can't quite figure it out. And, and they either in a labor dispute or in the marriage, both parties go and talk to this one person and the one person kind of talks between the two and comes to an understanding and finds a suitable agreement. Christ has negotiated an agreement to reunite sinful humanity to a holy and good God. Christ has come and taken our sins. He has removed our guilt. He has opened the doorway for you to the kingdom of heaven to be citizens, and not only citizens, but children of God. Paul tells us that under the law, we are guilty. Under Christ, you can be redeemed from these transgressions. It is Christ who has ushered in a new covenant, one that brings freedom. Good Friday comes in about two weeks. And such a day seems hopeless to the apostles who did not understand what was happening. Good Friday seems hopeless to the world who still does not understand what is happening on the cross. But to us, we recognize that Good Friday is the center point of the passion of Christ. The point that comes, and we also know that Sunday comes. The resurrection comes to complete this action. <clears throat> In Passion Tide, we turn our faces towards Good Friday. We are reminded it is in Christ's passion, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, that Christ is now our priest. Christ is now our sacrifice. Christ is now our mediator. Passion Sunday and Passion Tide may have gone out of style, but I want to remind you today that we turn our faces to Christ as we march tor towards the cross, as we march towards Holy Week. And remember that, that remember all that has been secured there for you. Remember all that has been completed in Christ's passion. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.